You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ralph, it is great to be back with you. We've gotten the band back together one more time, live on YouTube. Ralph, welcome. It's great to be here, Ash. It's going to be a lot of fun, actually. We've not done this to such a broad audience on YouTube for a very long time. It's well overdue. I know, indeed. By the way, Ralph, talking of that, let's give our audience a little bit of a sense of context. What are we doing here today, and why is it so important? Well, look, our vision and mission is to democratize the kind of very best financial knowledge. And it's not just about Real Vision members. It's about the broader world. We want to change people's lives at scale, give them the kind of information that the professionals in the financial markets get to level the playing field. And YouTube is something really important. We've got 650,000 YouTube subscribers. We want to get to a million because we want to build a bigger audience by adding as much value to YouTube as possible, because it's really important for us. We can't believe in our mission if at YouTube, which is our broadest audience, we don't deliver amazing products. So we've got incredible new series launching on YouTube. We've got a lot from behind the paywall that comes onto YouTube. Some of it's, you know, it's delayed by a little bit for so the members get it first. But we want to make sure that all of the YouTube fans get this incredible experience and they get to interact with us. So it's not like the stepchild that's kept on the side. It's like, we want you to be part of our core community. We really want to help. We really want to listen and want to help grow this YouTube channel into the channel that you all want it to be. Yeah. It's so important to meet people wherever they are, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Which is why we do Twitter spaces. You know, I've done stuff on LinkedIn before, and we need to start doing more on YouTube because it's really important because, you know, things like the Daily Briefing have big audiences. And some of our contents had three, four million views on YouTube. So we want to make sure that we're giving people the access to this information. What's amazing about the YouTube audience is how global it is as well. I mean, we've got people all over the place. It's one of the reasons we set up Real Vision India, which we're just starting and people will hear more about, is because there's a huge number of people who are in India and Indians are the biggest YouTube users in the world. And we want to make sure we get content for them and the right kind of shows. Yeah, it's also interesting as we add more value behind the paywall that we're able to then put more content on YouTube for free to bring in more of an audience to create greater engagement and greater community. That's right. I mean, you know, we're working on a lot of things in the background that's happening at Real Vision, some huge changes of the kind of value you get behind the paywall as well. But Right now, I don't want to focus behind the paywall. I want to focus on what we can give for free to really help people, give them the information they want, the broad perspectives that Real Vision has. You know, we don't have one narrative. My narrative can be entirely different to somebody else's, and we embrace that. You know, you see a lot of shit fighting elsewhere between people like, well, I don't, you know, he's wrong, he's an idiot. No, nobody's idiots. We're all trying our best to figure it out. And it's really important to hear all the perspectives. So, the audience themselves can make up their mind what makes more sense for them. How do they see the probabilities lie? What is the framework that they want to build for their investing? Or just to understand the economy and the world around them. Well, you know, Raul, talking of large audiences, we have over a thousand 
excuse me, over 1,300 people joining us right now. Uh, so let's jump right in, talking of thesis, and talk about the thesis. U.S. equities down three days in a row, NASDAQ and SPX closing at the lowest level in a month. Uh, where are we right now? What's the big picture thesis in the wake of that Jackson Hole speech on Friday? So my big picture thesis is from my forward-looking indicators, I do a lot of work for Global Macro Investor and also in Real Vision um, um, Pro Macro, two of my research services, on the global business cycle. And I particularly focus not on the data that's out today, you know, where we are in GDP growth, but where we're going, where we're going in inflation, where we're going in unemployment. My forward-looking indicators, which are like financial conditions that I've built based on the rate of change of the dollar, the rate of change of interest rates, the rate of change of commodity prices, from whether it's PPI, whether it's there's so many things, they are pointing to the fastest deceleration of data that I think I've ever seen in the shortest period of time. So what we're facing is a recession, which most people know, but I think the speed at which it happens is much faster than people expect. So we're starting to see some of the regional Fed surveys falling apart. But what I'm really looking at is the ISM survey, the Institute of Supply Management. That's a survey of basically buyers in large corporations and industrial companies about how they see conditions. They tend to have a very good job of tracking the business cycle. GDP follows it. Now, there's this magic number, which is 47. 47 is the level at which it has a 100% chance of recession. Now, we're still in the 50s, low 50s, but all of the forward-looking stuff is going down to 47 for the shorter-term stuff, i.e. the next couple of months, we should go 47 and maybe below, maybe 45. But the forward-looking stuff gets down as low as 35. So we're talking negative 2.5, negative 3% GDP prints. And that would be, it should be bottoming by my work by about February, March next year. So the economy is about to go off a cliff. And I don't think the market is yet prepared for it. So let's go back to this Jackson Hole thing. What did they tell you? They didn't tell us anything new. They said, we really want to get to 4% and hold it there depending on the data. Well, the bond market, if I look at at euro dollars or Fed funds, they're already at 4%. So the market's priced that. So there's nothing new. So I think, okay, there's nothing new there. So if the economy starts getting weaker, because the Fed said they will be more data dependent, then we'll see the bond market starting to price in lower rates in the future. So I'm looking at that. And then the Fed said, well, they will change their mind if inflation comes down a lot and unemployment goes up. So The forward-looking inflation data is already falling fast. My work suggests it could go negative in 18 months, which is something I've been talking about a while when I've been looking at, for example, the example of 1947, when people all came out of World War II, went back into the labor force, much like the pandemic. We had no supply because nobody was making everything because everybody was at war. We had this prices went up 20%, 18 months later, negative 3%. Then it had a rebound effect and then balanced out. I think we've got something similar playing out now, which is contrary to the narrative that we've got sticky inflation. Everyone looks at the 1970s, that's what we're doing again. 
unless the Fed crush it, they're Arthur Burns and we're going to ruin it. Well, in the 1970s, we had this massive demographic boom that kicked in just at the wrong point, which was the baby boomers entering the workforce. We have the opposite. We have in 2023, the record peak number of people hitting 65 in the US labor force. And that means peak retirees. So we've got peak retirees happening and we've got demand destruction driven by this economic cycle. So the forward-looking inflation data to me looks like, if I look at commodities, I look at a bunch of things like um, new orders versus inventories in ISM, that they go negative. Okay, that's the extreme. That's actually my base case. Maybe I'm wrong. But inflation is coming down significantly and very fast. So the next part is the employment question. And again, when I look at forward-looking employment stuff, just the housing surveys alone, housing is the fifth largest employer in America. It looks like that they will start laying off workers pretty fast because they've got massive inventories. Everybody from Amazon to Walmart said, we've got too much inventory. They're all laying off staff. Everybody's starting to lay off staff. All the tech companies are laying off staff. So I think we're going to start to see unemployment and inflation falling, the economy falling sharper than people expect. We're already seeing oil weak. We've seen all the commodities weak. Many of them are now negative year on year or close to it. So we've got this storm where bond yields are still high. They're actually, most assets year on year map the ISM really well. It's amazing. The business cycle is like this voodoo magic. And many people can see my threads on Twitter. Um, I write about this a lot. Um, I talk about it in Real Vision a lot is the year-on-year rate of change of the S&P, the NASDAQ, the bond yields, copper, oil, merging markets, credit spreads, that all map the ISM. So right now, where are asset markets pricing? Well, interestingly, bond yields are pricing the ISM at 63. So they're way above where the market- What does that mean, Ralph, for people who don't follow it fixed income and ISM? It means that the bond market is pricing inflation plus growth way far higher than the um, ISM survey itself. Hmm. Now, okay, but that's not consistent with anything else. The S&P is pricing it at 45, full recession. The NASDAQ, 42, bigger recession. Um, Growth technology stocks, 35, big recession. Copper, uh, 45, the dollar, which year-on-year rate of change also maps, is pricing growth at 40 or just below 40 now. So most asset prices are pricing in a sharp recession. The bond market is not yet doing so. The only other one that's lagging is oil, which is in line with current ISM and not future ISM. Everything else is pricing future ISM, i.e. recession. Oil's not pricing in a recession yet, and the bond market's kind of in la-la land. Now, I usually say the bond market is the truth, but at turning points, it can often be wrong. And it tends to lag because this inflation narrative digs its heels in. And we've seen that in 2000 and 2000. We saw it in 1990. We saw it in 2008. We saw it in 2018. The bond market deviates from ISM. ISM starts falling and then this wily coyote moment and yields start collapsing. Now, why do I care about yields collapsing? Well, I've just told you that asset markets are 
actually pricing in a full recession. And I know there's a narrative out there that the markets need to price in a lower leg from earnings. But when I look at it in my terms using the business cycle, I think it's already priced lower earnings. So if bond yields start to fall, then financial conditions are easing. And the chances are the growthier end of the world, NASDAQ, crypto, growth technology plays will start outperforming. And we've seen many of those bottom a while ago when bond yields topped. Now, we need to see that play out. Uh, tomorrow, Day after tomorrow is the ISM survey. I'm expecting it to be weaker than expected, but it could play out the following month. You know, economic data, one month to the next isn't a lot of data series or wiggle room. So let's see what happens. But the next couple of months, I'm expecting it to be signaling a full recession. And we'll get to the tipping point where bond yields start to fall. It'll start affecting asset markets. So I'm not a believer we go to new lows. I've done surveys after survey and seen all the surveys on Twitter. 70% of all respondents in crypto and macro think equities go to new lows. Now, if that is the case, then most people are positioned for it. So therefore, the path of pain is the opposite. And I think the markets price that in. So I think there's no certainties in this world. I can be wrong. But my view, the balance of probabilities are for me that the, the uh, risk asset markets, equities, crypto have bottomed. We are having a retest. And as the economic data shifts and bond yields come down, that'll drive that further. And it'll be a further hated rally because nobody will understand. We're going into recession. Why are equities going up? Well, because they already priced the recession. It's their job to be forward looking indicators. So that's kind of the big picture framework. Raul, I've got to say it right now, now that you've laid out the big picture framework, given a little bit of taste of what we're doing here on this channel, smash that like button, smash that subscribe button for these kinds of daily breakdowns on YouTube and stay up to date on everything that's happening in markets and at Real Vision. Yeah, I mean, look, it's really important because like Real Vision daily briefings there, all the content, if you just hit the subscribe button, you will get notifications of the content. You won't miss any of this stuff. And we will do more of this kind of stuff here as well. So just make sure you hit the subscribe button and the like button because it drives the algorithm and helps us out. So we'd appreciate that too. Yeah, Raul, talking of which, we've got over 2,000 people on this stream right now, uh, and lots of really great questions are streaming in. I know you have other things that you want to talk about. Raul, is there anything else you want to cover before we jump in and start hitting the live questions? Yes. A lot of people are going to ask about crypto as well. <laughs> so what is the macro driver of crypto? Well, inflation doesn't help because it's taking money from your pocketbook and not allowing you to allocate money into crypto because it's a retail-driven market. It also creates a lack of liquidity because the Federal Reserve, to stop, um, to stop the inflation, have been taking liquidity out of the system. So that means institutions and hedge funds have less liquidity to put into the system and therefore less flows into risk assets like crypto. I found the best approximation to be money supply growth, M2, year on year. And year on year M2 is looks like it's potentially turning up global M2. We're already seeing that China is going to start picking up M2. We're already seeing that Europe is going to start stimula stimulating through the back door, which is they're going to have to offset the electricity prices, the difference between electricity and gas prices. And they're also giving direct transfer payments to people to pay their, their electricity bills. So 
I think that monetary policy changes. It also lags ISM. It's kind of a weird thing. And it tells me that M2 bottoms right about now, which is what the crypto markets, I think, have been telling us. They're trying to find this bottoming process. And if I'm right, the economy slows down, liquidity is going to come up, and um, crypto is going to rally from here. Let's see. But again, I think crypto is put in a low. I think the ETH merge is a very big deal. Yeah. I think it's going to drive inflows. Yes, there'll be volatility. Yes, it won't be a straight line. But I think over time, it's going to put some security into the space because it's done and out of the way. Let's see. Let's hope there's no risk around this. It'll die some of the FUD narratives that are currently building as we move into this, which is only normal and people should question it. Um, and then we'll see on the other side, when you've got this yielding asset that is a giant in the space, what that unlocks in terms of DeFi, the opportunities for institutions to invest, and other opportunities that come from a different asset. Also, the ESG credentials. You know, we all know that Bitcoin ESG credentials are not what the ECB or others will tell you, but that's the narrative that's won the institutions now, that Bitcoin bad. But proof of stake, good. So I think all at the margin, it helps people allocate. Well, Raul, you really just described this kind of key inflection point, almost this macro moment. You mentioned M2. I know that we have folks joining us from sort of across the spectrum of their learning journey. Uh, M2 is a broad measure of the monetary base uh, that includes cash, uh, check deposits, and and securities that are easily convertible to cash. Give us a little bit of a context for people uh, who may be curious to understand your framework there. What does that mean and why is it so important in the broader macro? It's this macro? magic term you hear all the time, liquidity. How much money is available or how much is not available? So when the amount of money is growing, well, there's money everywhere. We can do stuff. Now, it means that it's easier to borrow money from your bank. It's easier to get a mortgage. It's easier to, to, to do all sorts of other things. But it also means that businesses have easier access to capital. Banks are not hoarding capital as much. So... It means that money flows throughout the financial system. We're we're a system based on leverage and liquidity. So when money supply is shrinking around the world at the same time, it means that it's going to pull down all assets. And in fact, when we look at it, the bond market has lost $19 trillion in value globally. The equity market's lost $21 trillion in value let alone you know, real estate, crypto, all of these things, we've lost something like 40% of global GDP in this pullback. I mean, that's a lot of wealth that's been destroyed. And that's without interest rates getting very far. I mean, the US interest rates are 2.5% and bond yields are at 3%. But that's the problem of a leveraged market. So when you take liquidity away from a leveraged market, if you're paying the interest on your loans and you've not got enough money, so imagine you're trying to pay your mortgage, but your salary keeps going up and down. So I, the amount of money you've got is suddenly less, which is what's happening with inflation. It's harder to pay your mortgage. So you won't borrow or spend as much money. That's what liquidity does. So it's M2 is liquidity. Liquidity going up is good for assets. Liquidity going down is bad for assets. Liquidity negative, where it is now, 
has been particularly bad for assets, which is why we've had a bear market and we're pricing in a recession. So before we jump into questions, two quick points that I wanted to touch on. I read your research today, and it's really interesting to me, and these two points especially struck me. You mentioned 4% and the Fed and how you don't think they're ever going to get there. That's number one. And second, of course, in the backdrop of all of this is the dollar. Give us a little bit of sense on those two points, which I know you've been thinking a great deal about, Ralph. So look, I know the Fed want to get to 4%. But my work suggests that the economic data will fall apart too fast for that to happen. This is federal funds rate for people who aren't following this as close. That's right. Yeah. So that's the official interest rate from the, um, the Federal Reserve. I don't think they, they will potentially get there because the economic data will fall apart faster. So maybe they do a 50 basis points in September. And then they're kind of like, do we do 25? Do we just wait and watch the data? Because they've said they'll go data dependent. And if the data falls apart, yeah, two months is not a lot of time. So maybe they get two rate rises in. Maybe they only get one in. I think it's going to be difficult if I'm right, if I'm right about the economic data this month. I think it's going to be really hard for them to do 75. I think they'll go 50. They've already said it's 50-50 anyway, whether they'll go 75 or 50. And then we should start to be getting to the, the grips of the massive slowdown in the economy that I foresee and therefore they might not get to the 4%. But they will pause and wait. They're not going to cut immediately. That's not going to happen. But they're going to pause and wait. The euro dollar market and Fed funds market says they start cutting next year, and it keeps moving around when they start that. But that's what they're thinking. The other big part of the equation is the dollar. The dollar is the key asset of all assets. It is 80% of all world's trade is priced in dollars. So if the dollar goes up or down, it matters. The dollar is driven by global liquidity as well. And there's not there's massive dollar borrowings around the world. More people borrow in dollars than any other thing. So when liquidity is drawn away, people scramble to pay back their loans. And then countries go bust, like Sri Lanka did. And places like Colombia have been running into trouble. So the dollar has been on this screaming bull run. It's now the second biggest bull run since 1996. I'm not sure it's yet peaked. It will do when monetary conditions back off significantly. Um, but we're not there yet. Even, even if rates come down a bit, it's not clear the dollar will do it because Europe is a big drag. China's a big drag. Um, there's some real issues out there in the global economy that means the dollar is still the kind of shiniest currency and the one that people want to own. But the dollar moving up and down drives asset prices a lot because most things are denominated in dollars. So the dollar going up is bad for the rest of the world. So it's good for the US because they import more goods than you export. Therefore, the prices of goods goes down. For other countries, it's kind of inflationary. But what happens is they export stuff. So Asia is the big exporter. If their currency is weaker, it's also going to bring down the rate of inflation over time because they're selling goods. If the dollar goes up 20%, automatically their goods are 20% cheaper. So if you're importing them into the US, they become cheaper, importing into Europe or whichever countries. So it is good for lowering inflation. It's bad for asset prices. Um, it's, it's slightly complicated. And because of the amount of dollar debts, 
people need to be very careful of the dollar going too strong, too fast, because it blows shit up. Yeah, I'm not sure if we can show a chart of DXY on screen. I just tweeted uh, the one-year chart of DXY. And as you say, it's just screaming up. By the way, I'm looking right now at a max chart of DXY. The only time when it's higher, looking on this max chart going back some 50 years, is two. One, it's the collapse of the dot-com era. And two, and some of our younger viewers are going to have to look at this on Wikipedia, it's the Plaza Accord days. I mean, this is historic stuff. It is historic stuff. And I tweeted out, people can look at my Twitter I think on Sunday, showing the parabolic trend. Currency should not go parabolic, especially the largest currency in the world. It's a bad thing. And, you know, I'm guessing that this is going to become a talking point for G7 nations. It's like enough is enough. Um, it's a big problem. You know, considering, for example, Europe imports oil. Japan imports oil. India imports oil. China imports oil. Oil is priced in dollars. And so they earn local currency and need to pay dollars. It's harder and harder to pay for. So it's bad. Yeah. Rob, what do you say? Should we jump in and start doing some questions? Yeah, let's do it. This isn't Ask Me Anything after all. Tons not, of questions. Just to listen to Raoul bleat on about his own view. <laughs> well, we got lots of questions streaming in live from YouTube. I think about 2,500 people watching us right now. Uh, first one comes from Alex Humphreys, who asks, so, so what does Ral uh, think about, uh, about where stocks are headed? It pains me to say it because it doesn't feel like it and everybody calls me an idiot. I think they're going higher. Now, I don't really have that bet on. So it's my hunch, not my bet. Hmm. I'm sorry, this is the question from Alex Humphreys, which is an even better one. What does Rao get up to on his days off? Um, read a book by the pool, if I'm in Grand Cayman, or go to the beach, or go out for a long lunch with friends. Wait, Rao, we, we get days off? That's a thing? Well, Sunday, maybe. <laughs> if we're lucky. From Sebastian Albeck, uh, your view on the China-Taiwan situation, will it be a black swan event? It can't be a black swan by the very understanding that we all know about it. Black swans are risks that we don't understand. So for us, at best, it's like, when does it happen? Sorry, at worst is, at worst is when does it happen? At best is maybe it doesn't happen. So we all understand the risk, but it's geopolitics. We have no idea how this plays out. I understand that the Russian situation put it to the forefront of people's minds, and it's definitely a possibility. But I don't think China wants to cut itself off from the world. And I don't think the US wants to cut itself off from China yet. So I don't think it's in anybody's interest. It's kind of this stalemate situation where it kind of rises up. It's like uh, North Korea, South Korea. It's not a solution where anybody actually wants to pull the trigger, but they want a position until maybe they can find an opportunity one way or the other to resolve it. How, what that means, I don't know. Could the Chinese invade Taiwan? For sure. Does it happen in the next six months or 15 years? I have no idea. 
Here's a great question from Paul. This is a great real vision question. Everyone likes to compare the current recession to past recessions, but no past recessions are exactly the same. What do you think will be the fundamentally different aspects of this recession? You touched on this a little bit uh, earlier. So I think the feature of this recession is there is no bogeyman in the closet. You know, we had a glo global macro investor roundtable, my research service in the Cayman Islands in May, and we had a bunch of very smart, you know, well-known investors all together. And we debated this for a while. What is the shoe that drops? And the answer came out, the economy. It feels like this is more likely to be an economic event, but everybody's looking at it as a credit event. And there's mm -hmm. nothing going on really in credit markets to give us that fear. Yes, they're not great, of course, because the economy is slowing down and there's liquidity tightening. I don't see that one moment. Now, the one thing that's different about this one to the last one since maybe 1990 is there is a supply issue. So we've got high prices. Now, we had a demand issue in 2007 in commodity markets because China had come in and massively bid up the price of all commodities. And that helped slow the world down because the commodity prices were too high and inflation was high. 1990 saw similar. And then really, it's somewhere between, I think the closest is 1947, 1948. There are elements of 1974. There are elements of 1990. Mm. And there are some elements of the 80s. Now, everyone uses the 80s as the big example, right? That, that the Volcker years, right? The reality was the S&P fell 27%. We've already done, we've pretty much done that then. And 1990, it fell 20%. 1990 was a pretty common garden recession. We had the savings and loan crisis. We don't seem to have a credit event on the horizon. Now, I know other people have thought maybe it's to do with commodity hedging. Well, most of the commodity prices have gone down, so that, that fear has been alleviated. I don't see it. I think it was just the unwinding of the excess liquidity from the pandemic, and we returned back to where we were back in about 2018. Rao, here are the year-to-date numbers. SPX minus 16.4%. NDX, uh, that's NASDAQ 100, minus 24.3%. NASDAQ composite off 24, almost flat. Yeah, and they've been down lower, right? So they're up from the lows anyway. So they've, they've all, as I said, they've priced in a very significant move, much like 1980-81 did, much like 1990 did. People look back immediately and go, well, look, look what happened in 2008. Well, 2008 was a very unique event. That was a massive credit event. 2000, well, the economy didn't go down a lot, but there was massive, massive speculation in equities. We haven't seen the same. We've had excess liquidity, some excess speculation, but not of the scale of then. Most people who comment on that didn't live through it. I lived through it. I was running a hedge fund at the time. I was all over it. It's very, very, very different environment. We saw elements of it last year. You know, at the very peak of the markets, we saw elements of that, but it's still extremely different. A huge number of questions flowing in right now live on YouTube. Uh, as people are hitting smash and subscribe, they're asking questions. This I hope they are. Before I'm going to answer a question, subscribe to the channel because you get more of this kind of stuff. We're going to start using this more, and there's some amazing updates. So just please hit the subscribe button and also hit the like button. That will be really helpful.
Yeah, it also feels really cool and it's fun to be doing this live when there are people actually interacting with us. And we're seeing right now the the stream just scroll by in terms of live comments and people are putting comments in on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, via email and a whole bunch of other places. But it's really cool and it's fun. I think fun. we should it's read out the biggest insults as well because there'll be, there'll be a few on there. <laughs> I'll keep an eye out for them. So here's a great question from uh, Muhammad Kasawat, and the question is something you touched on earlier, Rao. Muhammad wants to know, what's happening with the bond market? The bond market is confusing me right now, to be honest. I'm expecting yields to come lower. We've seen the economic data come lower. We've seen the oil price come lower. We've seen inflation numbers come lower. We've seen the equity market come lower, and it's been stubborn. And I think it's based on narrative. Also, I'm, I have a suspicion it's something to do with the student loans and some hedges around that. I don't know. That's speculation. How, how does that work, Ralph, for people who, who... I don't really know, Ash. I've been trying to figure it out. What is driving this flow? Because it's really inconsistent with everything else. Right. And I'm thinking, if you wipe off a debt, there's the other side of the debt, and there's usually a hedge. Usually, these things are a spread. So if you're selling, if you're lending people money... Against it, you'll buy a bond as a hedge. So you have the difference in interest rates between the two, as opposed to right. worrying about the bond market going up and down. If you just wipe off one side, you've got an open leg, which would have been the long bond leg, which would have been sold. I don't know if that's the case, but that's what it feels like. Maybe it's happening by the Treasury General account. I don't really understand, but it feels like there's an opposing flow that's going on because it's just not consistent with anything else, which is why... I'm really focused on the bond market because it seems the best risk reward in all of macro land right now. You know, I have not been as certain of my economic forecast since before the pandemic. And this is the most certain I've been. Yeah, those two times the most certain I've been in my entire career. But the bond market's not confirming it. And, you know, I want to see the markets confirm. It's great to have an economic view, but if the markets don't do it, you can't invest in it. So, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the turn. I'm expecting weak economic data for the market to give up the ghost. Positioning is pretty much second all-time record short bond market, bonds as well. The equity market pretty much is record shorts. So we've got all this setup where everybody, I think, is set up the wrong way. And those trades get unwound if the economy doesn't follow through. Um, Mark Ritchie the second was talking about this yesterday on the daily briefing, is like when the market isn't doing what you expect, like 70% of people think the equity market should be going to new lows, and it doesn't, there's usually informational value in that. Now, could there be informational value in the bond market? Not. Possibly, but then it would be confirmed by other assets, and it's not being confirmed by anything. So the relationship is weird. Yeah. Here's a great question that comes to us from Vishnu Vardhan. What breaks first in a bubble market? Great question. Well, what broke first was the long duration stuff. <laughs> so, you know, particularly with inflation and taking liquidity away, well, the first things that go are the things with that are priced for future growth, because you basically lower future growth by Ralph, okay. explain that for people who have not had the benefit of being locked in a bank and doing DCF analysis. What does that mean? Well, it means that as you raise the discount rate, your future expected cash flows are worth less. Now, the issue is 
if you have no cash flows, it's worth a lot less. So we find that these long duration things, crypto and growth equities, they got smashed the most. They were the ones that benefited the most. Now, that's not to say, again, we'll go through this in due course, crypto is not correlated in the longer term to any of these things. It's correlated in the liquidity cycle to the liquidity. But if you look at the chart of NASDAQ and crypto over the last 10 years, I mean, they look nothing like each other. So those are the things that get destroyed first. They've already been destroyed. As I said, the long end of growth has, um, has priced in about 32 in the ISM, which is would be the lowest ISM print since 1974, which when it got down to 30. Um, so it's been very much priced in, the inflation shock, the growth shock. So that's really what's going on there. And then you have to wait around to say, okay, what other shocks are there? Then you start watching credit spreads. Is somebody borrowed too much money and they can't pay it back? We haven't really seen a lot of that. Yes, we've seen credit spreads. We've seen Europe having a bit of a struggle, Italy. But the ECB came in as ever and said, we will not allow this to happen. And I kind of believe them. Because when you've got an unlimited balance sheet, you can stop anything happening by buying all the bonds, much like the Japanese do. So where is the big risk? I don't know. I think it's households. It's, you know, everyone's spent all their savings. Everyone's run up credit card debt and people are going to start losing jobs. And they've lost real earnings because their earnings have gone up, but inflation has gone up more. So the purchasing power of everybody's wages have taken a haircut. We've had terrible negative wages. And that's that's been a bad, bad shock for people. Yeah. So one of the things that we're really passionate about here at Real Vision is education. You've talked about ISM, Institute for Supply Management, numbers here a couple of times. Give viewers a sense of, you talk about this almost sort of spooky, uncanny ability it has uh, to presage some of these turns of the economy. Talk a little bit about what ISM is, Raoul, and why it's so important. So it is my guide to the business cycle. It's what I build my six-month to two-year, 18-month framework around. Basically, a general economist will tell you, will never predict a recession. Why? Because they use linear modeling. They put inputs in, make a few assumptions, linear model. You show a small child a chart of GDP and they go, well, it goes up and down, obviously. <laughs> right? Not one fucking economist does this. It's insanity. So back in the late 90s, I started realizing that the business cycle was the predominant driver of asset prices. And just by transposing it to year-on-year S&P versus the ISM, it unveils the whole world. So you know how to make asset allocations once you've learned this simple trick. Again, go to my Twitter feed, have a look at it. It's plenty there. Um, so the ISM survey, as I said earlier, uh, for people who've just joined us, it is the Institute of Supply Management Survey, and we're asking the buyers at all of these giant corporations, industrial companies, what they think of economic conditions, employment, orders, new orders, prices, everything. And it becomes this composite index. And guess what? It goes up and down, just like GDP. But it's like a monthly version of GDP. Right. It tends to lead a bit, too, because GDP takes a while for accounting. Right. So now we've got this monthly variation of this. If you want, you could use the ECRI, uh, and you can get that off the ECRI website, the Economic Cycles Research Institute website. 
the the weekly indicator is a weekly version, very good, works very much like ISM. Those things, what you're looking for is turning points at the peak. Then you know that the rate of change of growth is slowing down. However, many people, and I've made this mistake in the past, at peak turning points, you start thinking, well, things are going to slow down. Actually, the rate of change of asset prices still goes on for a long time. When it crosses 50, generally, the rate of change of asset prices starts going negative, or if the market starts forecasting that in advance, which is why the S&P is already pricing ISM at 45. 47 is the level that has a 100% guaranteed chance of recession since 19... I think it's 1952, whenever the ISM started. It's a long time ago. So it has a perfect track record. And so that's why I use it, because once you start going, you start seeing your forward-looking indicators of ISM, which are usually the subcomponents of ISM, plus other stuff, um, like freight rates and shipping and car sales and whatever it is, what happens is, you can start to predict when markets will act in a certain way with more confidence. Nothing mm -hmm. is perfect. Things fail. Things change. There's other parts of the equation you miss. But it gives you a really much higher probabilistic odds, which is why I'm really comfortable investing in the six-month to 18-month time horizon versus the one week, the three months, because I find the economy the best driver. Now, it's also a great arbitrage. Because almost all the capital in financial markets and all of the models and systems and algos and hedge funds are all working on the intraday to one to three month time horizons, because that's when they have to report to their investors. Now, if you extend your time horizon by using the business cycle, which is how old school macro used to be, you can generate significant returns over time. But because you're dealing with longer term time horizons, you have to deal with a bit more volatility too. Um, so you need to think about how you size things accordingly. And you get points in the cycle like we're coming now where we, we probably get to an acceleration point in the bond yields if they start falling. And I might really add to that position if I start to see the, um, the price go in the favor of what the economy, what the forward-looking indicators and what the ISM is saying. So it, to me, it's the single most important indicator mm -hmm for the average person to understand, is the economy growing? Now, it's even if you want to simplify it, you kind of know that when it peaks, probably around two years later, you're going to have a recession. And when you get to the bottom, you probably know that in another two years' time, three years' time, the time horizons aren't perfect, you're going to have a boom. And that, you know, that just simple tool stops you feeling like you're not in control of what's going on, that you don't really understand. So I urge everybody to use the RSM survey or go to the ECRI website, look at their weekly leading indicator. Yeah. It's very useful too. Yeah, extremely well-framed, Ralph. Two points to add some color there. First, Real Vision subscribers will know uh, Lakshman Akutan, uh, who runs the ECRI, one of our good friends who's been on the platform many times, conversations with you uh, and with me. The second point about uh, about ISM, what's so interesting about it to me, is it's, in many ways, it's the difference between top-down and bottom-up, right? 
you know, you have economists who, I don't know, massage their temples and, and try and come up with this number through a series of different formulas. Uh, what's interesting about ISM is that these supply managers are basically talking about their own business. It's very difficult to predict the economy, but if you're running a business and you're a competent manager, you have a pretty good sense of whether business is going to be up or down the following month and by how much. Well, I've talked a lot about this. The power of the hive mind is more than most people realize. So you've got a bunch of smart people in a position of knowledge. When you amalgamate their views, you've got something very powerful. And you know that's the value of the Royal Vision community. You know, we've got everybody is super smart. So the amalgamation of those views, super interesting. And that's what this is. You're taking a bunch of experts, putting them all together. There's a great book on this called Super Forecasting. Yeah. And, and you know, the, they start adjusting themselves once they start realizing their forecasting errors as well. So they tend to get better over time. Yeah, we should get Philip Tetlock on the platform. That would be an amazing conversation. Yeah. By the yeah. way, talking about community, Rao, we're up to about almost 3,000 viewers on this stream right now and almost 1,000 likes right now in this conversation. So go ahead and smash well, firstly, the Firstly, like we need 3,000 bloody likes. There's no excuse. And I want to see 3,000 new YouTube subscribers because you're going to get more of this content. So I want to see those numbers go up, please. <laughs> Rao, many of them are probably already dedicated YouTube subscribers. Like how, how many? It's like vote early and vote often. Exactly. Even if it just helps our algorithm rise it to the surface, you're helping Real Vision. Raul, here are two questions, one from uh, Yaron and uh, Peho Kellon. I'm going to aggregate these together. Both are interested in understanding what's happening right now in the housing market, obviously something that's been greatly discussed the last few months. What's your take there? I've been talking about this for a long time. Housing inventories got too high because people extrapolated peak demand from 2020 and 2021. And what's happened is because of interest rates rising, mortgage rates have gone up the most in a kind of year-on-year -year rate of change in history. Um, and inflation is etting to people's real earnings. People stop buying houses. Meanwhile, we've just made massive inventories of houses. The only way for that to clear is prices to come down. So prices are likely to come down. Look, it's not 2008. This is not an over-leveraged, massive bust. But house prices can be soggy for a while. But don't forget, they just went up like 25%. So if they pull back a bit, maybe house prices come down 10 to 15%. Net, net, you know, it's still up from where it was. But, you know, if you're looking at buying a house, you'll probably get it cheaper. But if you're looking at buying a house, you probably can't afford it right now because your mortgage has gone up and, and you're not earning as much money. So, you know, and also worry about unemployment. That will, that will not help the housing market. So the housing market is going to cool off. Yeah. Here's a very serious and weighty uh, macro question from the White Knight. Love your chair, Rao. Is that Al Capone's? <laughs> this is a, a reformed 1950s barber's chair that I found on Etsy and brought in from California. I, for no reason that I just thought it was quirky and cool. And I sit in there and listen to podcasts with a glass of wine in my own peace and quiet. So I love it. Here's a fun question from Practical, and it's a practical question. What legalities does one have to go through in order to start a hedge fund? <laughs> First, you need to raise money. That's the hardest part. Right. Then you need to go and see a bunch of lawyers who will charge you a fortune for basically boiler template stuff, which is a legal agreement. You need to incorporate a company, a bunch of legal agreements, a bunch of registrations. 
it's a painful bloody process. I think it's going to be disrupted by tokenization. We're already seeing the rise of platforms like Enzyme where people can launch kind of asset management on chain. Mm. It's not available for most investors yet, but nor are hedge funds. You know, you have to be a accredited investor. So I think if you're looking at it and you haven't raised a lot of money, go look at on-chain variations. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Let's jump around here a little, Raul. We've got people coming to us on all different platforms. I wanted to take one from Instagram. Uh, this one comes from uh, George Lagodatris Jr. And the question is, why buy now if recession is certain? Because the market's job is to forward look. If I can see the turn in the data already in liquidity conditions in February or March of next year, the market can too even though most participants can't, which is why the market always confuses people. The market generally bottoms before a recession. It's normally three to six months. Sometimes it's been a year beforehand. Other times it's been in line with the economy. So my guess is the market has seen the low and it lies ahead. I short, sharp recession. And therefore, the market is already looking through, which is why the euro dollar market is trying to price the turn of when the Fed have to start easing. Yeah. One more question from our friends at Instagram. This comes to us from Janet Ilamaki. How do you manage stop losses and how do you know when to exit a winning trade? Great question. And this is a really complicated question. So how I... I'm not a big fan of stops because I'm not a short-term trader. So I need wiggle room for my so I tend to use more idea stops. When am I when is it feeling wrong? When is the the larger trend change? So not short term. But the best advice I've got is if you run like five or ten positions and you give yourself a stop for all of them, let's say you're a shorter term trader than I, if you give yourself a stop. Work out what percentage of your NAV are you going to lose for that stop. Then add up all of your stops together. So maybe that one's 1%, that one's half percent, that one's 5%, whatever. Then you've got the overall risk you're taking in a worst case scenario. Now, correlations may help you. Other things may help you. But what you're doing is saying, how much can I lose? That is the single most powerful thing you can understand is how much risk you're running. Um, and what you tend to find is the closer your stop loss, the less risk you run unless you use leverage. So you can use leverage, but you have to run a tighter stop loss because leverage is increase the size of your position. You'll lose more of your original capital because leverage is the extra capital on top. So stop losses are different for different people. I'm not a big stop loss. I'm more of like, this trade is not working. I allow myself a lot of wiggle room because I'm longer term. Only when I'm really applying to a trade where I'm going all in, will I then start thinking about, okay, I need to be more careful here because I've got a lot of risk. And so therefore, I'll think of stop losses for part of the position, all the position, take profits, all of that kind of stuff. The hardest part is not stopping out of a trade. It's actually taking profits. Hmm. It's bloody hard, particularly in long-term trades. Um, it's just it's a mindset. There's a ton of this in the Real Vision Academy. I can't give it justice here. A lot of people have different perspectives, but the Real Vision Academy covers this in great detail. Raul, what is Real Vision Academy for people who may be joining us for the first time on YouTube? So Real Vision Academy is our education platform that's part of the Real Vision Plus tier. 
So Real Vision Plus, you get all of the content of Real Vision, and this gives you all of the education. And it's basically taught by the most famous people in financial markets. It's like being taught acting by Robert De Niro. You know, it's crazy who's there teaching you everything from how to build a macro framework, how to look at the business cycle, how do economic indicators work, what's the psychology of investing, what are the pitfalls I'm going to make, how do I run risk, what are stop losses, how do I use technical analysis? And not only that, then we dig into, well, here's three of the most famous technical analysts in the world, like Peter Brandt and Tom Demark. They're going to teach you how they do it. It's unbelievable. And it's fun. It's engaging. It's not a written course. It's videos. And right. it is just groundbreaking and mind-blowing and considering courses like this usually cost three and a half thousand dollars plus and nobody's got a course like this of this quality with these kind of people and it's all part of the it's free as part of the plus tier which is 550 dollars for all the other content you know events and all the other stuff you get there so it's it's a hell of a deal and again we want to help as many people as possible if you can't afford 550 dollars in an education you shouldn't be in the financial markets Raul, you said smash the like button. We've just jumped up to 1,300. There we go. Good people. Thank you. By the way, I think one of the coconut girls has just sneaked into the shot. I think she's trying to upstage you, Raul. She is. She's just coming from her walk. <laughs> All right. Let's jump around here a little bit because we have questions coming in from just about every possible platform right now. Uh, this one comes to us from Twitter, uh, from JJBPresent. Uh, does Raul think TLT is a good investment? And if so, what's the whole period? We should say iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF. I like bonds. That's a decent way of playing it. You know, manage your own risk. You run your own trade. I run mine. But I think the time horizon I'm looking for, for interest rates to fall, it usually goes through recession and through the other side. And so I would imagine that it's a decent trade for nine months. But we need confirmation that this bloody bond yields are turning or the TLT is turning and we're just not getting it yet. So it's frustrating as hell for me right now. But let's see. But I like it. Overall, I like it. I also wanted to hit some questions coming in from email. Uh, first one comes to us from Mujir Hussein. And the question is, how important is the upcoming election for U.S. markets? How much is already priced in? Great question, Mujir. I don't know. A lot of people look at this stuff. I don't really look at it. You know, are we going to get this paralysis of policy? If we do, it kind of means the Federal Reserve have to do everything because there's no fiscal which is why they're trying to jam through some fiscal now to try and see if they can win more votes coming on the other side. I don't really know. Generally, split house midterms are very good for markets because the market, you know, the, uh, the, the policymakers don't get in the way because they can't. So in which case, the only people to drive the bus are the central banks. So generally speaking, it's pretty positive if the Democrats lose you know, part of this, whether it's the Congress or the House. Here's one that comes to us from Alejandro Rodriguez. Raul, you said Spain has Europe's best food. What's your next vacation destination? And he says, he adds, you better try South American food. So I'm planning some holidays right now. I already got um, a holiday booked to a kind of wellness retreat spa in Mexico. So that's Latin America. I am trying to get to Argentina for Christmas and New Year. 
um, still negotiating around mum who wants to come here for Christmas, for New Year, Christmas, trying to see, well, would you fly down to Argentina instead? I don't know. There's, there's family negotiations going on, <laughs> but I want to get to Argentina. Uh, I'm going to go to Buenos Aires and, uh, and Mendoza. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, here's one from life of a 40 something Ralph, What are you drinking? Uh, right now I'm drinking a, a LaCroix tangerine flavor. It's it's still 525, so it's not a glass of wine time yet. But I will have a glass of wine after this. And I think I've got an open bottle of Pellini Montrachet, which is a lovely, one of my, fa my, my favorite white wines in the world come from uh, Burgundy. These are white Burgundies made from Chardonnay grapes, but not like the heavy oaky Chardonnays that we get all else in the world. In Burgundy, they're uniquely special. They've got this minerality, this cleanness, this crispness, but this richness and butteriness. And Pellini Montrachet um, is kind of up there with the very best of those. And now there's different producers, more expensive ones. This one's not particularly, you know, fancy one. Um, but that's that's what I'm looking forward to. And I'll that's probably have it with some toasted almonds, salted toasted almonds that I will roast in the oven. That sounds perfect. Raul, I, I know you've got a heart out at 630, but I wanted to just give our viewers a summary. Key takeaways from this conversation. We've covered a lot of ground here today. My key takeaway is I think the economy falls very fast. I think that the asset markets have pretty done pretty much a good job of pricing this in. I do not necessarily see another leg lower in equities, um, another leg lower in um, crypto. I think we're in that process where we're doing the retest, the head fake. I could be wrong. So I'm giving myself a 60% probability. I'm not like there's 100% probability, 60% probability or so. In crypto, I don't really care if it goes lower because I'll just buy more into this because as the liquidity cycle turns, we know how it works. Um, I think the bond market is mispriced and yields will come down much faster than people expect. I think inflation will come down, unemployment will go up. I think the dollar continues higher for a bit and then starts weakening and we'll have a corrective cycle that may last a year, two years, three years maybe, before we still keep going because we've got too much dollar debt. So every time the global economy slows down, you're playing musical chairs and the dollar screams higher because everyone's trying to pull the chairs away because they need the dollars. So I don't think that that whole game is done. So that's kind of how I'm looking at this right now. I'm I'm focused really on two key areas. Crypto, which I've been allocated to, allocating to, because I really think we're at the turn. And I think Ethereum merge is a bigger deal than people expect. And I think a lot of people yeah. have just been washed out again. Now, Tom DeMarc tells me, you know, he thinks that Bitcoin makes a new low at 17,000. 17, hmm. Maybe that's right too. So, and I don't think ETH will confirm. I don't know. You know, and I'm saying... To me, it doesn't really matter, but just people prepared. You know, I'm not saying with all the certainty. It's what I think the balance of probabilities is. I think the same with equities as well. But for that really to be the case, I need to see bond yields come lower and the economic data come lower. So it's kind of really in the point where we should start to see things change and narratives change fast. That's what I'm really focused on. This next two months of economic data. If it's not a lot worse than expected, 
then every single I mean I produced in that GMI, you saw it's like fifty, no, sixty charts all yeah. showing the same thing. I've never seen anything like this before. For them all to be wrong would be simply staggering. So we'll see. Yeah, Bitcoin trading right now, a shade below 20,000 at 19,848. Interesting call from Tom DeMarc on that from a technical perspective. Raul, I know he said with the last question, but we've got one final question because it's a good one and also because it comes from Frank Fowler's dad, who is our crack podcast <laughs> producer here. So we got to get this one in. And Frank's dad wants to know, how serious are the economic issues in China? One of our key themes here on Real Vision. They are very serious. And this is a l slow, slow story. When you've got a managed economy, crisis rolled slowly. Don't forget, China, uh, Japan's still unwinding its demographic bust and its bubble from 1990, because it's quite managed in how it does things. So the Chinese economy is an issue. You know, the, there's been excess leverage, excess capacity built at every level, and they're going to have to manage this. And what they want is a managed decline. They know it's a problem. Chinese um, economists, Central bank politicians are a very smart bunch. They understand their economy very well. They understand the issue that they've got. But at margin, firstly, it's going to create stimulus because they're going to have to stimulate. So that's going to be positive at the margin for risk assets. But also, it's going to keep the Chinese economy from not demanding as much stuff. Now, China's never going to go back and build the same amount of bridges and apartment buildings again, unless it knocks mm. them all down and starts again. Those days have gone. Yes, there are big demand, but there's not it's the rate of change that matters. And the Chinese rate of change of demand is not going to go up. India, that might be different, but that's kind of not there yet in terms of a massive new construction wave. There's building tons of roads and other stuff. So, But India is something to keep an eye on. It's the most positive I am on any global economy over the next 10 years. Mm. It's got a demographic age of 28 it's it's completely digitized large parts of its economy. It's got some world leading companies like Reliance, which are creating network effects upon network effects. Um, and we are seeing a massive boom in entrepreneurism, VC capital, capital allocation, all happening in India. So it's one of the most exciting setups I've ever seen. Feels like some combination of the US in the late mid 80s yeah it feels like the us in the mid 80s and also mm. a little yeah around that kind of thing where you start to get the you know indians don't have debt they have high savings they have a 20 percent savings rate and and no debt so you're not even you've got none of the impediments the west old populations high debt no savings india 28 years old no debt, high savings, about to go into peak earnings. That journey from 28, and everybody who's, who's you know older than that knows, but by 30, you're starting to earn a bit of money. You're starting to get pretty serious in, in your career by 35. By 40, you're into the, you know, where you're starting to earn some serious money if you've got a good career, that the whole Indian population is going to go through. Mm. So the amount of investment boom, the capital markets, Indians are investing in the stock market. All of this is coming. People setting up businesses, the opportunity set. So I'm super bullish India. Raul, incredible conversation again, as always. Really nothing left to say except yeah. smash that like button, smash that subscribe button. That's and right. Let's keep doing this, Raul. Yeah, let's do it. It's fun. 
Um, it's kind of different to Twitter spaces because we can all see each other, which is nice. Yeah. We're just going to be doing lots more of this in the future. Well, this was a pleasure. Hope we can do it again soon. Yeah, loved it. Thanks, everybody, for watching. I hope I added a bit of value and didn't confuse you too much. Thank you again, everyone, so much for watching. This was a lot of fun to do. Thanks again. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.